Let me begin where we left off last Sunday. Uh, some of you didn't get to be in the chapel, but you were here and saw the live stream, and my text was Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, and I'll read that to begin with as a springboard for the message. This is the dedication of the temple, the great beautiful temple of, of King Solomon. In verse uh, 13, it describes the gala affair that it was. It came to pass, it came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For He is good. We did that tonight. For His mercy endureth forever. That then, and I emphasize not till then, then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God, had filled the house of God. The only thing that elicited a response from God was the praise and thanksgiving of His people. And then you probably don't need to turn there unless you wish to, to just look at the wording, to have it staring you in the face. But Psalm 100, probably you've memorized. I hope you have. I know if you went to kindergarten at Friendship, you memorized Psalm 100. And I'm so thankful that our children do that every year and recite it. But in verse 3 of the, the old 100th, as it was known, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We're not self-made people after all, are we? We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. What an apt description of the church, of even any one local church. And the very next phrase, enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. And there it comes up again, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. Immediately following that glorious truth that we are His people and the sheep of His pasture, then it, it is incumbent upon us to praise Him, to thank Him, to express it. I like what the hymn writer said, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. We, we get, excuse them, don't we? They don't get it. But those of us who have experienced redemption, who are part of Christ's church, but children of the heavenly King may speak. I, could I change that? Must speak. Must speak their joys abroad. If we don't do it, the very rocks would cry out. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, this passage that describes the heathen, and so aptly, and oh, how it relates to our day as we see God giving us up progressively to unnatural affections, to a reprobate mind. People can't even figure out what bathroom to use. We can't, we're, we're messed up. But a society that degenerates into that, the Bible describes them, Paul does, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. That's a description of the heathen. 
that became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. I'd like you to see one or two more passages and then a few comments and then we'll get into our time of praise. Would you turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation? We often look upon the book of Revelation as a great book of prophecy, which it is, but did you know it's a wonderful manual about worship? When we stand around the throne of the Lamb with those 24 elders and the angels and the intelligences of all the principalities, we're going to worship. We're going to worship as we never have before. And in verse 11 of chapter 7, it describes that worship when people of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stand before the throne, before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And this is what will happen is according to verse 11. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders, there's 24 of them, and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Twenty-four elders. I know not everybody's agreed on this, and I'm not going to part company with anybody that doesn't agree with me. But could that not stand for the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New all together? Twelve uh, tribes of Israel, twelve apostles that make up the foundation of the church, the New Testament church. This is the church, folks. This is the church of all ages. Before the throne, before the Lamb, worshiping, praising, superlatively, perfectly for the first time. Yes, as I mentioned this morning and Bob reiterated tonight, we do praise God for who He is. We thank Him for what He has done. We thank Him. Primarily the demonstrations of His faithfulness to His people, the church. Believers constituting the called out ones, the ecclesia, are the ones who truly realize, though few others do, that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because yes, as the writer to the Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. That's not popular preaching. But He's the same God who just incinerated people right on the spot in the Old Testament for rebellion and complaining. Our God is a consuming fire, but is of His mercies that we are not consumed. And lest we draw from that an artificial contrast with Jesus, as many people do, and think, oh yeah, God the Father, you know, He's, he's austere, He's strict, you know, He's the God of fire and brimstone, but, but Jesus, you know, He's a soft touch. He's a, the loving Son. Don't make that mistake. Because the Bible says in the second Psalm, verse 12, kiss the Son, S-O-N. That means pay homage to the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little, the Son's wrath. That's all it takes is for His wrath to be kindled but a little, and we could be incinerated. But blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. You're either trusting Him tonight or you're provoking Him. 
the point I wish to make is God has set His glory in the church. I don't think we see the church quite like God does. The church is kind of a charity, you know, good thing. If it helps people, you know, it's good for you, doesn't work for me. It's kind of the attitude we have about the church. The church is a big deal, folks, expressed in the local assembly. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And Paul talks about the glory of God in the church in this chapter in a probably more than any other single chapter in the New, in the New Testament or in his writings. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Wisdom is just one aspect of his glory, his attributes. And then he closes on a high note, a crescendo of praise in verse 21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. We reflect on our great God, not just to one another, but to angelic creatures in the heavenlies. Have you ever thought about that? God, listen, God is making the earth a stage, and He's making the members of Christ's body the great symphony of praise to give glory to Him like nothing and no one else. David said in Psalm 19 that God has set His glory above the heavens. Well, we see some stunning images coming back from the James Webb telescope of the heavens. And they've just begun. There are billions of galaxies we didn't even know were out there. Billions. Galaxies. Yet the glory of God in Christ's church is even greater than that. God has set His glory above the heavens. And that is in His church. Did you know what? We who are redeemed and constitute the church of the living God... We are the wonder of angels. We are the mouth stopper of demons. We are the delight of the Son of God. Because in Proverbs chapter 8, words, the whole section there that describes the Son, words that are ascribed to the Son, he said, I, his delight was in the habitable part of the earth. His delight was with the sons of men. That's not in the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. Wow. The delight of Jesus was with us. You say, preacher, you're getting a little excited. Yeah, I know. You're used to that. Our God is a great covenant-keeping God. That's why we could stand a few moments ago and at three different times, and I appreciate the way Brent split it up, sing that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I don't know what the church did for 1,800 years before that, church, that hymn was written. Very briefly, how is God faithful? To what? To whom is God faithful? Well, first of all, and this is where we need to start, He's faithful to Himself. 
Don't you just love those words of Paul to Timothy in his second epistle, chapter 2, verse 13, if we believe not, and how often we don't believe, how often we're guilty of unbelief, we have to say with that father of the stricken son, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. If we believe not, literally, if we are faithless, yet he abideth faithful. Why is that? Because he cannot deny himself. (laughs) He can't deny himself. He is not a man that he should repent or change his mind. Aren't you glad God is true to his nature? We better be because that's why we're not consumed. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Like a famous preacher out in California said years ago, famous pastor S.M. Lockridge in his peerless message, that's my king, he said, you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. He's God. Have you stopped to thank God for just being God this season? Just being who He is? Are you growing to know Him? Is it your desire to know the God who is there, not a God you want to fabricate to your own liking? Because we got a whole lot of that going on. He's faithful to Himself. Secondly, he's faithful to his creation. We sang a little while ago the second stanza of that great hymn. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars, the billions of them, in their courses above, join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. I asked the man on our prayer call the other day, we got up early for prayer, and I said, uh, this was the day that the sun had already come up by the time we prayed said, did any of you worry about the sun coming up this morning? (laughs) No hand was raised. Not a virtual hand, not a real hand. I doubt you've ever worried about that. I never have. Even if I I get up and I think it's later than it is and it's still dark, I've never worried, I miss the sun coming up. His God is faithful. Climate change is not going to change the cycle of the seasons. The planets and stars move with clockwork precision on the path that God has ordained for them. God is faithful to his physical creation. How much more is he faithful to us who are his new creation, created anew in Christ Jesus? Will he not love us unto the end? Will he not not love us to the uttermost even as he testified, or as John testified that he did in chapter 13 of his gospel, he did to the 11. He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his creation. Thirdly, he's faithful to his word. Psalm 138, verse 2, Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name, the psalmist said. We just established the fact that God cannot deny himself. He is who he is. He cannot deny himself, but he would sooner do that than break his words or alter that which goes out of his mouth. Well, there are many applications of that. Let me just draw one very quickly, and that is, let's not be afraid to claim God's promises. There are hundreds of them in the Bible. 
And somebody's quick to say, oh, but what if I claim something that belongs to Israel and not to the church? I don't mean to be trite or flippant. I really don't. But my advice there would be just go ahead and plead it anyway. God will either show you that you have no right to claim it, or he may just forgive you and fulfill it anyway and say, that poor guy, he still has some kinks to comb out of his head, but he trusts me so implicitly and he desires my glory. I'm just going to show myself faithful and not put him to shame. I mean that sincerely. God is faithful to to himself. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his creation. And finally, God is faithful to his covenants, both old and new. God is a great covenant-keeping God. I know we're not covenant theologians. We're dispensationalists. But I hope that doesn't cause us to minimize the fact that God is a great covenant-keeping God. He's fulfilling his covenant even right now with what's going on over there in Israel, the Middle East. He's not going to make a full end of Israel. Oh, he's probably not done with some of the purging he's going to do. And we need to bless Israel. We need to pray for her because the one that bless her, God will bless. But God is faithful to his new covenant people, the church. All the exclusive privileges we have. I'm afraid we don't think of them very often. Think of what the church has that nobody else had before that. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of prayer in Jesus' name. Nobody did that in the Old Testament. Never dreamed of it. We have the intercession of the exalted Christ at the Father's right hand. We have the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days. That's why we need to pray for it. New covenant blessings, privileges prerogatives. I hope we're not content to just be couch potatoes and sponges tonight. Let's exercise this glorious prerogative of God's new covenant people. Thank him for his faithfulness through his church to us.